This talk was given by Vanessa Zwiese Goddard Sensei. Zwiese Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazwiesegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. One early winter morning, a cold morning, maybe like this one, uh, two 16-year-olds from rival gangs got into a fight, and they had guns. And one of them used his gun, and in his anger killed the other one, who was the only son of a single mother, who a month later had to sit in court and face her, her son's killer. And she stood up as the sentence was being read, 25 years in prison for second-degree murder. And she looked this teenager in the eye, and she said, I am going to kill you. And the young man was led from the room to a cell where he began to serve his, his sentence. And 10 years went by. And one day he was told that he had a visitor, and it was this woman. And she began visiting him frequently, and she would bring him food and books, and she started asking him questions about himself, and she told him, in turn, about her son. And little by little, over time, she worked her way towards forgiving him. And the two of them began speaking together about forgiveness and reconciliation in the uh, prison system. And five more years went by, and then he was released. And he moved right next door to this woman and that he had hurt so deeply, so unimaginably those years, all those years ago. And she would check on him every day. She would uh, make sure that he had clothes, that he had food, that he was getting a job, that he know how to dress for an interview, that he have a girlfriend. And one day they were having a meal together. They were sitting at her kitchen table and she said to him, do you remember what I said to you that day that you were sentenced? And at first, he couldn't say anything. He was afraid to say anything. And then finally, he very quietly said, yes, I do, I do remember. You said you were going to kill me. And she looked at him head on again, and she said, that young man who killed my son is now dead. You are no longer that person. And at the end of our Donna Dinner Perfection of Giving weekend, I wanted to speak about a particular kind of giving, a giving that is really transformation. And in, in his commentary, there's a treatise on the, the paramis or paramitas. Um, and in his commentary, Acharya Dhammapala said that there are three main kinds of gifts that we all give. And the first is to give material things. And the second is fearlessness, and the third is the dharma. And when it comes to material things, a bodhisattva gives whatever is needed to whomever needs it. They give when they're not asked. They give especially when they are asked. They give sufficiently without expecting anything in return. So they're not giving for their own sake. They're giving really for the sake of giving. And they don't give things that are unsuitable 
for those who've asked for them, for example, you know, giving drink to an alcoholic, they give only what is suitable and what is skillful. And they give just enough, not too much, not too little. And really, fundamentally, they give because they can. As I was saying yesterday, because it is the most natural thing to do. It is what a bodhisattva does. In the Bodhisattva's Four Methods of Guidance, Master Dogen says, to launch a boat or to build a bridge is an act of giving. If you study giving closely, you see that to accept the body and to give up the body are both giving. Making a living and producing things can be nothing other than giving. To To leave flowers to the wind, to leave birds to the seasons are also acts of giving originally endowed with the power of giving one's own self, comes into being. And it is really the first of the perfections I was saying yesterday because it is the easiest to practice, the most accessible, and it is what uh, all of us do. Ordinary people do, wise people do. And it is a perfection when it is, in fact, giving for the sake of of letting go of that self, letting go of attachment. It is a perfection when it is based on wisdom. And so when you find yourself uh, grasping, holding on, that act of releasing, that hold, is an act of giving, of dana. The gift of dharma is the a deliberate and methodical instruction of the Buddha's teachings to um, give rise and cultivate the mind of enlightenment, bodhicitta, in all beings. And I've, I've talked about how you know, when my cat was alive, I was reading Kalu Rinpoche, and he said that when you, to, to read the Dharma to animals will uh, cause an auspicious rebirth. And so I sat on the couch reading Kala Rinpoche to her. She was really almost completely deaf, so I'm not sure how much actually went in. (laughs) But I figured, you know, it can't hurt. And so a bodhisattva uh, chooses every opportunity they have to give, to guide, to inspire. Once again, not for their own sake, but uh, to benefit to really offer that gift of dharma. And, and actually, I think the most important way in which they, they teach is by living that gift of dharma, by, by living, giving itself. That's the, the example of their own life. And then there's um, giving of fearlessness. And in the sutras, it's defined as the, as the giving of protection, but, you know, when I um, heard of this story, I thought that, that the, the woman's willingness to, to stand unafraid in the presence of her son's killer was the gift of fearlessness. N- not only that she would meet him, but she would kill him, to kill the killer in him by loving him, by giving life to that in him which she recognized as true and good that she was able to release enough of herself, of her own anger, which took, if I remember correctly, was about 10 years. She didn't visit him for about 10 years. And ten years had, after 10 years had gone by, she was ready to see him, to meet him in this way. 
and I think of um, Lincoln, you know, who, who during the Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history, he um, offered a kind word to Southerners, and a woman who was listening to him reacted with shock, and he said, you know, they are our enemies, and they should be destroyed. And he said, do I not destroy my enemies, madam, when I make them my friends? But who are my enemies? Whether they're on the field, out in the field, or the enemies in my mind. Who are they and how do they end up on the other side of the line? Where is the line? Who drew it? So whether it's another person that I'm having trouble with, or whether I'm struggling with, with myself, with my cravings, my unfulfilled desire, those you know, less uh, attractive or understandable aspects of my personality, my contradictions. Do I relate to them as enemies, or do I relate to them as friends? And are those the only ways, the only two ways to relate to them? One of the residents was, was telling me they were reading a, a book about personality types. And they said, you know, you really fit this one personality type to a T. And I said, oh, you know, what, what is it? He said, well, you're really an upholder. An upholder accepts readily both uh, internal and external expectations. I mean, I really thought so. We follow rules, <laughs> basically. And I thought, yeah, you know, that, that really means for, for an upholder, like we rebel so quietly that nobody knows it's happening, not even us. <laughs> and I felt a little depressed <laughs> by it, and so I went online just to you know, <laughs> look it up. And the example that they gave for this, so there's the upholder, the questioner, the rebel, and the obliger. And uh, the example that she gave, the author gave for the upholder is that they will stop at a stop sign at 3 a.m. in a deserted uh, town. And I thought, aha, vindication, because when I drive this morning in the morning, 3.45 in the morning, I just roll right through the stop sign. <laughs> so there. <laughs> so I'm not perhaps an upholder. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's never that clear cut, but I was thinking how um, uh, it, it gives us a sense of, of safety, you know, or, or, or some form of comfort to know, oh, this, that's who I am. There's, you know, many books like that, you know, where you, you fit into a certain family personality type, and there's a certain comfort in knowing, oh, okay, that is who I am. So I stand over here, you stand over there. And of course, it's never that clear cut. I don't just uphold or rebel. I don't just fight or befriend you. But living in that uncertainty, understanding, accepting the fact that things are much, much more um, mysterious than that can be frightening. I mean, we're seeing that right now in our country, in the world, really. We're, we're the, our, it seems like our need to draw clear lines has become stronger than, than ever really as a response to when things get become gray. And I've, I've been, um, I've talked about it before, and I've talked about it with some of the, the residents, that I, it's one of the reasons why I feel is so 
important to, to cultivate, to strengthen our, um, our emotional resilience, our spiritual resilience also, our, our capacity to tolerate both difficult emotions, but also this uncertainty. Not knowing sometimes, who, who am I really? Because when, we, when we're not able to, we limit we limit ourselves, and of course we limit the one who's in front of us, and that has consequences. A couple of weeks ago, Shugen Roshi referred to, you know, the, the allegations of sexual abuse and, and harassment that have been in the news. And he asked the question a couple of times, in fact. I remember noticing that as he was speaking. What are men afraid of? What is this often irrational, and it seems disproportionate, violence towards women about. And it seems, you know, almost as if uh, in response, you know, writers and journalists, comedians, women and men have been quoting Margaret Atwood, who in 1983 uh, said that she was having a conversation with a male friend of hers. And she asked him that question. And she said, you know, why, why do men feel threatened by women? And he said, well, they're afraid that women will laugh at them undercut their worldview. And then she asked a group of women students, she was doing a poetry seminar, and she asked them, well, why do women feel threatened by men? And they said they're afraid of being killed. Now, you know, as a man, as a woman, you may not, may or may not agree with this view. But I do think, fundamentally, there is a deep fear that we all have so we avoid, you know, we go numb, we defend ourselves, we lash out. Most of us, I would say, at some point in our lives have been deeply afraid of being alone, of our loneliness. We're afraid of, as I said, of, of thoughts and feelings, actions that often contradict one another and we don't understand why. We're afraid to get close, we're afraid to stand apart. And we will do almost anything to not feel that fear, that uncertainty. So this emotional resilience is really the ability to take in very difficult truths, you know, about the ways that we relate to ourselves, first of all, and then the ways that we relate to one another, and have been, for a very long time. And just this, these past two weeks, we watched a couple of films with the residents, this um, Beyond Fear of Differences work that we're doing. And, um, you know, and just to, to, to say, actually, that one of the reasons, the main reason, really, why we haven't opened that work up to the rest of the Sangha is because we knew, at least a little bit, of how difficult this work would be and we um, are learning ourselves how to hold this material, how to work with people as we, as we dive in. It's, it's very tender. It's very um, uh, vulnerable work. And so we, we wanted to start small. And so, so we've been working. And, and you know, you've, you've heard us speak about um, just the, the, the ways in which we relate to one another and uh, use or misuse our, our, our power in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of 
age, you know, all the isms that we're all familiar with. And so we watched um, a couple of films in succession, one film one week and then the following week the other one, about how we are deeply, deeply conditioned to, to act, to be in a certain way as men, as women, by the media, by our peers, our parents, the culture. And, you know, I think I'm not alone in saying, you know, I feel like I've been put through a blender after watching those films. It was very painful. It was extremely painful. And the question came up, I think, understandably, you know, what, what for? Why are we putting ourselves through this? What are we subjecting ourselves through this, to this? And, um, you know, it is very difficult to, to first accept and then rec- uh, recognize and then accept that we really are swimming in this sea of conditioning. And you can't get out. It's not like you can just be on the shore and watch as everybody else struggles. We're all in it. And it's as old as humanity is old. Perhaps older, I don't know. And the currents really are so powerful that sometimes it feels like real transformation would be like reversing the tide. It feels impossible, it feels overwhelming. So it's easy, it's easy to get defense and say, you know, I'm not that way. I don't do that. Or just to go numb. I can't take this. And, and, and Shugen Roshi has been speaking about this, you know, the courage that a bodhisattva needs to face what is um, at times unimaginable, you know, to face. Is, uh, I don't think we can get around that if we're going to do this work. In fact, I'm pretty sure we can't get around that if we're going to do this work. And how, you know, there really is all, all, uh, a whole range of it. And that this conditioning, sometimes it's very overt and we know that it's happening. And so often it's, it's subtle and it's, it's insidious. I was sharing with a couple of you how, you know, now that I'm work supervisor, I have to interact with a number of guys, you know, slightly older guys, the repair guys, you know, the technicians. And they're very nice. And... Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm there, and I, most of the time I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm asking a lot of questions and um, nicely telling them what to do. And they are very nice back, but they, most of them call me honey. And the other day, one of them called me doll. <laughs> and, uh, um, <laughs> and, they, and they speak to me accordingly. You know, they, they speak to me a little more slowly. They repeat things several times, you know, to make sure that I'm, that I'm understanding. You know, I doubt that they ever called Gokan honey. <laughs> and, you know, it would never occur to me to call them daddy, you know, or sweetie pie. <laughs> and and I, I know they really, they mean no harm. And I'm, from their demeanor, really, I can tell they're not, certainly not wanting to, to harm me. Uh, but the moment I become a doll all sorts of things become possible, become more probable, let's say. You know, and now I've started to say, you know, please call me Vanessa. And it, it reminded me, uh, we had, uh, one of the residents had sent uh, uh, this, this short clip that Tanahisi Coates was talking about words, really, and he said, you know, words 
are, um, derive their meaning from context. And he was using the, the example of honey. So he said, you know, my wife calls me honey. I have an intimate relationship with my wife. If a passing woman on the street calls me honey, there's a situation. I hopefully don't have an intimate relationship with this passing woman on the street. And so they're, they're, the context um, determines the, the appropriateness right, of a word and the meaning of a word. And so, you know, once again, it, it, it's... it's um, I imagine, uh, again, from what I'm perceiving, that it's a, it's a very um, innocent um, act on their, on their part. But immediately a power differential is established. Words have power. And of course, it's not just with, with gender. I was reading how the, the surname of our president has become a, a kind of a code for a racial taunt. You know, so kids are, are using or chanting it in, in basketball games and football games to taunt the other kids, the other team, especially if the other team has kids of color. So how a word, and a name in this case, has, has taken on that meaning. Thoughts have power. Actions have power. What we think and what we say and what we do matters. You know, our lives matter. And that is why, that's exactly why we're doing this work. You know, sometimes at, at, at the, in the middle of a long week, the last thing you want to do is be watching a film that is really going to turn your insides out. But without being willing to examine what we think we know, we'll just keep repeating the same patterns just over and over again. We have been. And really, fundamentally, it has to do with how we understand self and how we understand other. That is perhaps what I think, what is the strength of doing that work here. Because that's the root. How do I understand what this is, therefore what you are, because that is exactly how I will relate to you. This is another poem by Joy Harjo. I had quoted her a couple of weeks ago, and it's from a book called Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings. This morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. Harjo is a Muscogee, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Creek Nation poet, musician and performer, who who writes um, passionately about what it means to be a human being and who, someone said to me, has the courage to name and touch painful things. That is really so much of what is happening right now 
you know, with these allegations. Women coming forward, having the courage to name what is certainly not new, what is not um, the exception, but we're naming it. And here she says, you know, an enemy must be worthy of engagement. This is uh, crucial, because better an enemy who has the, who, who risks the danger is bare to the possibility of becoming a friend. Better that than a non-entity. So what I can't see, don't know, won't touch, I have no relationship with. I cannot transform. And this line, the door to the mind, should only open from the heart. You know, actually, since mind and heart are one, they open together. It's in our misunderstanding that we separate them. It's in our fear that we isolate them. I was reading a, a talk on Bodhicitta by Kandra Rinpoche, and she was saying how a simple translation of, of the term is awakened heart or the awakened mind of enlightenment. But another translation, she said, is courage. So by having a basis of courage in our own state of mind, we're able to uh, let go of those things that obstruct our potential, she says, to be helpful, to be loving, to be kind to others, first of all, and then to bring about the causes and conditions of happiness in others' lives. Right? So first is our potential to be, to meet another. And then the second is to actually bring about the causes and conditions of happiness in their lives. So, it, and it's not abstract. It can't be abstract. Like you, you, you can't um, come here and vow you know, to wake up and then go home and get drunk and watch porn and think that there's not a gap there. Something's happening or not happening. And I'm, you know, I don't mean to be a saint. It's really about being in harmony with yourself, with your aspiration, right? So that your body, your mind, your heart are aligned. You know, by working harder than we think we've ever had to work to identify and be free of those things which obstruct that potential for wakefulness, that obstruct that awakened heart. And she says, you know, if you want to find out if you are working with bodhicitta, just ask yourself, as a human being, is my life increasingly directed towards building up the causes and conditions that create an environment of happiness for myself and those around me? My way of asking this question is, what I am about to say, what I am about to do, will that alleviate suffering or will it compound it? Am I helping you or am I hurting you? Am I respecting you? Am I demeaning you in some way? Am I seeing you as a person? Am I seeing you as property? Subtly or not so subtly? Am I feeding a sense of entitlement? Which in our culture is is touted really as our birthright. We should have what we want. So you could say in fearlessness, an aspect of fearlessness is renunciation of that entitlement. It's understanding that, no, we're actually not entitled to having everything that we want, because not everything that we want is skillful, is wholesome, is good, is in harmony with the way things actually are. 
And then she says there are four ways to generate bodhicitta. The first is you just reflect on it. Your own taking time to, to be thoughtful about what you want your life to be. And sensing that natural arising of that bodhicitta in, in your mind and not being afraid to turn toward it. And so it's what brought you here. That impulse to look, to search, to awaken. And not being afraid of what that will take, what that will mean. Because a lot of this work will be deeply, deeply uncomfortable. And that's an understatement. But let's just start with discomfort. A lot of it will be deeply uncomfortable. We have to be able to tolerate being uncomfortable. And I was saying how I think we've gotten worse at it because we've gotten so good at being comfortable. I think our range keeps getting narrower and narrower and narrower, which makes it harder. It feels like there's something wrong when we are uncomfortable. The second is by living a life of virtue, which is really just a life of basic respect. Basic respect and decency. A life of really cultivating, practicing, awakening our selflessness. The understanding of what it means that the self is empty. And the third comes really from the the strength of our zazen. We stop and we see that in fact what we think and do and say does have an impact on those around us, that it creates karma. And the fourth is to draw inspiration from the life of a teacher whose vow is to cultivate bodhicitta. Right? So, so that's such an important part in our, in our own path. We don't really do this alone. We have the, the guidance, the inspiration, the example of a teacher. And then having generated bodhicitta, you, you now cultivate it through the four immeasurables loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And to these, you add effort and determination. So when the thought comes, I am overwhelmed, I am hurt, I want to shut down, I don't want to deal with this, we actually have something to turn to. May I be filled with happiness and know the root of happiness. May you be free of suffering and know the root of suffering. May all beings never be separated from boundless joy, which is free of suffering. May they remain in perfect equanimity, which knows no desire or aversion. We're deliberately turning our mind. We're we're focusing our awareness. And and she says, Kandra Rinpoche says, you know, this is completely possible. It's completely realistic. But we have to do it. And she says, I often tease our Buddhist friends, that it's very nice to like the idea of cultivating bodhicitta and loving kindness. You all like the idea of breathing out kindness and light and breathing in the suffering of sentient beings in the form of black light. But I would love to see the day when the spread of loving kindness is not restricted to the breath. If I were on the receiving end, I'd like to get something other than hot air. <laughs> I, I really like her teachings because she's, she's constantly... Um, bringing up and making fun of, you know, the, the, the gap, really, you know, the, our intention, our good intention, 
you know, to, to live a spiritual life and then the reality of it. The, the beginning of the talk that I read, apparently people had just been fighting each other for, these, for this grass they were receiving as a kind of empowerment. And she was about to give this talk on loving kindness, and they were all fighting each other. And so she kept saying, you know, this has to be real. You actually have to be doing it. And she was saying how in, in her monastery, they had to make a rule because every time there was a talk on uh, compassion and generosity, all the nuns would give all their stuff away. The first week, they would give all their stuff away. And then the second week, they would start to get, take it back. <laughs> so she said they had to make a rule that you couldn't give anything away after a talk on, on generosity, and, uh, generosity until you were sure you were going to give it, give it away and that that would stick, <laughs> and so it's 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 a real. Um, I mean, that's really where practice is, uh, in 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 how we actually meet each day, how we meet ourselves, how we meet each other. There's there's our intent, there's our aspiration, and there's actually then how we we put it into practice. And so bodhicitta is, is really the the root from which these four branches, the four immeasurables, can, can grow and spread. Because without, without that strong aspiration to, to actually be free of our attachments, you know, our, our good intentions won't last. And so I often say we have to work on two basic levels, you know, the, the level of the ultimate, where you are um, increasingly deepening, clarifying your understanding of, of that selflessness, as well as impermanence and unsatisfactoriness, the three seals of existence. As practitioners, that is really our basic work. That's really where the transformation uh, takes root. But at the same time, we're working at the relative level to, to keep bringing into alignment our thoughts, our speech, our actions. It is really changing our behavior from what is unskillful to what is skillful. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes you can't tell. That is why we do this together. That is why we're vowing as a sangha to help each other wake up. Because ultimately, as the Buddha said, our actions are our inheritance. They're the ground upon which we stand. Somebody said to me, what I, um, and I don't remember exactly the words, what I give my energy to will grow. Whether that's good or harmful, what I give my energy to will grow. But perhaps, you know, the, the silver lining of everything that's been going on is that now things aren't hidden, or at least some things aren't hidden. hidden. So that means... We can deal with them. We can do something about them. And as I said, it doesn't feel good to shine a light on our delusion. But it actually feels even worse to cover it up. And ultimately, it cannot be done. So we need more than ever, perhaps, women and men who will be fearless and do this work of waking up. And the fact is that neither side can do it alone. Neither side is a side. If we can realize that, 
then we'll be well on our way. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.